We're going to continue our series on the Beatitudes. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 6. Matthew 5, verse 6. Jesus is speaking. The title of this sermon is Our Driving Passion. The Beatitudes, Our Driving Passion. Jesus is speaking and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Lord, help us as we study. Last week we went through the background and the context of Jesus' ministry at this point in his life. The people were looking for a Messiah who would come as a monarch and set up a kingdom that would have unparalleled peace and prosperity, whose reign would have no end, and there would be no boundaries to the increase of his government until it encompassed the entire earth. They were hoping that Jesus would, would unseat Herod, who was the king of the Jews at the time, that he would overthrow Pilate, who was the Roman puppet ruler over Judea, which happened to be what we know as Israel, and ultimately stretch all the way to Rome and unseat Caesar. And Jesus was bringing a kingdom, but it was of a different order. And the expectations of the Israelites and the expectations of what Jesus was bringing were completely different. I don't know if you can relate to that at all. God is really skilled among many things at which he is skilled. He is really skilled at disappointing you. It's not because he, he's mad at you or doesn't like you or has withdrawn his love. It's because your expectations are all wrong. They've, they fit in three categories. Either they are completely misplaced, they are inaccurate, or they are too small. One of those three. But it's the only way we know how to relate to him because we have an idea about how our life needs to go. And when, when he doesn't co-sign our plan, we get mad. When he disappoints us and doesn't agree with what we would like to see done, we get angry. And we get angry because we think, he, he is messing with my life and, and this is never going to be good. This is this all we see is what we can see. And when we see our life beginning to crumble and every dream we've had fall to the ground, we get concerned that anything can ever come from that, that there can be a resurrection moment. And so we get angry at God and some of us find our faith shipwrecked because he destroyed our dream. When in actuality, he is disappointing us on purpose that he might give us something better. Because if your dream is wrong, if it's inaccurate or it's too small, why settle for, for good when you can have best? He wants to give you great when you're settling for okay. And the Israelites wanted a natural kingdom, somebody to sit on the throne in the temporal, in this now world, and do something for them now. And Jesus was saying, listen, I'm going to sit on the throne, but it's going to be the throne of your heart. And as a result of me making people better, the world will be better. 
I'm coming with a kingdom, but it's going to have its, its rule in a different form. It's going to emanate from a different source. Receive what I'm saying, and it will be better than Solomon's kingdom. And he's trying to communicate this by using the same word over and over and over and over and over. Now, it's impossible to read the Beatitudes without realizing that he said blessed a lot of times. And, and we almost read it religiously because we think, well, this is a religious sermon and it's, it's kind of got the sense of a, of a, a, a catechismic moment. A teaching moment, maybe a, a doctrinal, uh, a creed moment. Blessed, 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 blessed. But if, if, if you don't understand the context in which Jesus is ministering and the people to whom he's ministering and what they're going through, you, you don't understand why he's saying this so often. Because if it's just information, proper grammar would go something like this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You don't have to say blessed every time. You said it once, it encompasses the entire rest. So why would Jesus say it over and over and over and over? He he doesn't like to, to waste oxygen. Now, he may have said sermons two or three times. In that he may have spoken the same thing in Galilee that he needed to speak in in Jerusalem. And so many times we might have different accounts of how he said maybe the same sermon from different writers, i.e. Matthew and Mark. We're not quite sure exactly how many times he had to say the same thing. Remember, there were no recording devices except scribes. And, And during that time, people were coming in and coming out. And so he may have spoken things many times. And so repetition may have been the order of the day, but... But rarely does he repeat himself so often in the same sermon. Unless there is a blockage to what he's got to say in somebody's mind or in the culture. And these were people that didn't feel like they had been blessed in generations. They hadn't been blessed. Their parents had not been blessed. Their grandparents had not been blessed. And he's coming to say this. I'm about to make you happy. I'm about to make you happy beyond your wildest dreams. And may I say to you this morning, God wants you happy. But I, but I had to mention the part about the disappointment first. Because you have an idea about what's going to make you happy. But that usually isn't his. Because your thoughts are not his thoughts and your ways are not his ways. It's when you, when you come into the place where you adopt his thoughts and his ways, and then he does what he needs to do in your life, that then you become happy because now you agree with what he thinks is good. I'm going to have to really preach this, aren't I? Oh, God wants you blessed. He wants you happy. But you're going to have to figure out what his will is in order to Find out what real happiness is. And the happiness he wants to give you is not based on your temporal circumstances. It's not based on what's happening tomorrow or happening today. It's a happiness that transcends anything that's going around you. That you can be happy even when sad things are happening. See, you got to have, it's a deposit that God puts in the soul and it's a perspective that you need to gain. 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because your rod and staff come for me. You, your word is with me. Everybody goes through difficulty. It's the inheritance that Adam left us in being on the planet. Everybody does. But we Christians get the privilege of going through difficulty with our God. So when you go through difficulty, you need to take it just a step back and say, wait a minute, I got him with me. Oh, oh, I can be happy through this sad time. Because I could have to go through this all by myself. I can be happy. And then when you walk through the, everybody say through. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That means you get to the other side. And when you get to the other side, you ought to rejoice because you didn't die. Hallelujah. Two reasons to be happy. Now, what good has happened to you? Not much. You just made it through. But there is a joy in knowing that since I have to live on the planet which is full of difficulty, I get the privilege of having God with which I get to go through stuff. And I have the confidence that he is going to bring me through. Perspective and a deposit. A relationship. Something that God drops in your soul that gives you the privilege of Feeling something that other people don't. Of knowing things that other people don't. I I realize many of you studied the Bible. You realize that joy and happiness are two different things. I get that. But the happiness I'm talking about is not based on the happiness that people look at happiness as being based on in the world. It's based on how God wants me to be predisposed as I face the world. And the attitude I need to have as I go through. You're looking at a pastor, a man who is, without question, the most blessed man on the earth. There's nobody who exceeds me. Nobody. Others might, might come equal, but nobody is more blessed than me. And right now, because you equate blessing with finances, you're thinking, how much does he make? <laughs> I'm not talking about money at all. This church provides for me beautifully, and for that I'm grateful. But there's a lot of stuff I turn down that they want to give me. I drive a six-year-old Toyota. Come on. I believe in moderation, not opulence. Yet I believe in provision with abundance. But I am not rich. I got too many people that eat my food. <laughs> I got three kids in college. Three, three. And, and, and see, we're happy because last year we had four. See what I'm talking about? It's perspective. It's perspective. We're happy. We're not complaining. We're happy. Ooh, we look at three this year. I have great friends. <laughs> Amazing friends of three decades, over three decades, that I've walked with. I, have the, the, I get to pastor the finest church on the planet. I know I'm not supposed to compare, but I don't care. <laughs> You're the finest people on the planet. I got the best woman since God made Eve. I'm sorry about all you other ladies. Please forgive me if you feel offended, but I got her. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I could not have had a better partner. And I'm not saying that just because she's sitting in this service. I said it in all the other services. 
She educated my kids. 23 years she homeschooled. Seven kids. And they're smart. They're smart. They, two of them graduated from college. Got three in college. They're smart people. She's never complained a day of ministry, even though I've left her as a single mom for a week going on missions trips. Never complained a day about my ministry. Only supports and prays for me. She still loves me, and she knows me really well. I am more blessed than anybody on the planet. Anybody. And I thank my God because I sure don't deserve it. I know what I deserve. I'm a sinner that has been saved only by His grace. And because I was a sinner, I deserved what sinners get. The wages of sin is death. I deserved death. I deserved punishment. And I didn't get any of that. I'm not going to hell. That's a good thing. All my sin is forgiven. I'm the most blessed man on the planet. On the planet. And so when I go through stuff, I maintain my happiness. And I encourage your staff to do the same thing. I I tell them, you do not come in this house with a frown on your face. Ever. And I'm not asking you to wear a mask. I'm asking you to find God before you come in here. Because your job is to be a minister, not to be ministered to when you walk in here. You find God. And you get happy when you walk in here. I don't care if your babies are ill. I don't care if you had an argument with your spouse. I don't care if your house is look like about to be foreclosed. If you've got financial difficulties. If your, your parents are I do not care about what you're going through when you walk in this house. I will pray with you and support you through all that stuff, but when you walk in this house, you are a leader, and you better be ready to minister and have happy on your face. And you should not need Pharrell to help you. (laughs) Room without a roof. No, you don't need all that. (laughs) Blessed. 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 Now, the first two things which he described you should be blessed through were conditions. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Those are conditions in which people find themselves. And he says there are blessings that come as a result of you're in that condition if you believe. The second two are really conditional. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have to intentionally have an have attitude in your soul that is full of humility and decides to use restraint on your strength. That's what meekness is. The control of strength. Restraint on your strength so that God can can bless you rather than you trying to take it, you get to inherit the earth. And then lastly, or secondly, with respect to responsibility, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because if you do, you'll be satisfied or filled. The word hunger there is, is, is just not the word hunger. Um, It means actually to go hungry. So, you're going out on a date tonight. And this man has told you he's taking you to the Palm. Ruth Chris. And you know this dinner is probably going to 
going to cost a couple of bills. It's going to be nice. Your roommate walks through the door at about 4.30 with a bag of McDonald's. Your dinner's at 6.30. And you smell the french fries. You know McDonald's will do that to you. It'll just start making your, your stomach gurgle a little bit because they, they, they know how to draw you in. But what do you decide knowing that there's a $150 meal for you waiting in an hour? You don't want to do anything to spoil that moment because you want to enjoy everything that's about to be given to you. So your roommate asks you, would you like some fries? Mm-mm. No, no, no. I'm about to get some good food. So what do you do? You choose to go hungry. Because you want something else. Blessed are you when you go hungry for everything else except righteousness. You are blessed. That's the way God wants us to be with respect to doing the right thing and being the right way. We hunger for righteousness. And Jesus here uses hunger and thirst, He doesn't use desire. We're not talking about ancillary things or things that are unneeded. We're talking about core things with which you cannot live if you don't have. Hunger and thirst are two things that tell you I'm dying if I don't get it. That's the way we ought to be with respect to righteousness. If I don't get it, I will die. If you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness like that, you won't get it. It doesn't just come to you. We are too messed up for righteousness just to come to us. You don't serendipitously walk into doing the right thing. Okay, a clock is right twice a day. I get that. That might be you every once in a while. But the pattern is not that you are going to serendipitously walk into doing the right thing to such a degree that God is going to say, Oh, well done. Good life lived. That is not going to happen. You've got to hunger and thirst like it is your last meal, like it is something you've got to have or you will die. If you don't, you won't get a right life and you will not be satisfied with the way you live. And there are two things with regard to righteousness about which we need to hunger. We need to hunger for righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. And that's a righteousness that is imparted to us as a result of us being sinners. Now, you have to understand the human condition. We are all criminals in the sight of God because we've broken his law. And when you, when you continue to break the law over and over again, in our society, they call you a criminal. And we don't like that kind of terminology spiritually because it, it seems kind of intentionally prejudicial toward a mindset. Exactly. Our mindset is to disobey God on the regular. It's the extraordinary moment when somebody does something well. And that's why we will take a moment to honor people who do things well. Because it doesn't happen all the time. Most of humanity is interested in how it can get what it wants, not about how they can serve others. And so when the extraordinary happens, we recognize it. But it is the usual, the ordinary, for folk to be selfish, 
inundated with their own desires, consumed with their own passions, not being altruistic and thinking about humanity. We are bent that way. And we have proven that we are really good sinners, practiced, skilled, professionals. We know how to do it so well, we cover it up so other people can't even see. Now, I know I'm not talking about you. There are other people who need to hear this message, though. (laughs) You are a tough crowd. We do everything we can to try... To, to, to hide the things that we do. But the reality is we cannot hide our sin before God. We are messed up humanity. And not only have we proven that we are messed up humanity, we need to know this, that we are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we were born that way. And as a result of being born that way, that's all we do well. The only way we can change that is to hunger and thirst for something else. To prove it, have you ever, you parents, have you ever had to teach your children how to disobey? No? It just came natural? Well, if mankind is so good and getting better, why don't kids come out obeying and have to be taught to to lie? You never teach a child to lie. It just comes natural. When they do something wrong, they think, okay, I got to figure out how to make this look like I didn't do anything wrong. Okay, look at that. They naturally go that way. Did you ever teach, in all your vocabulary lessons with your children, did you ever teach them the word mine? Where did they learn it? <laughs> it's, it just kind of comes out when somebody takes their Batman figurine. Mine! <laughs> what do we have to teach them? How to be kind? share how to love which is the evidence of the fact that they are bent with the same thing that Adam had and Adam could only produce what he was God made an immutable principle like begets like apple trees bear apples pear trees bear pears apples don't bear pears sinners produce sinners Adam was a sinner Eve was a sinner that's all they could make and so we came after them and we're sinners and if, 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 if we were sinners, take this paper clip. We're bent. And what sinful people try to do is say, I'm not. And so every once in a while, they'll, they'll, prove, they'll try to prove that they're a good human being and try to do some good works that somehow make them acceptable in front of people. And yeah. So they start taking all their life and trying to bend it a certain way. And they they get it like that, but it's still crooked. Huh. Well, they keep going. And they try. And you know how, no matter how hard you take this paperclip and try to make it straight, it's still going to look like this. But mankind feels better that it didn't look like the other anymore. And so they compare this with the completely bit paperclip and say, well, at least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not Hitler. Well, you and him can share a cell in hell. (laughs) You can't compare yourself 
to somebody else and somehow think that that makes you right before God. Especially when we compare ourselves with the worst to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. That's not the way this thing works. The, the righteous standard is what he is. And he is perfect. And the only thing that is eligible to gain heaven is perfection. Because imperfection is not there. Imperfection comes as a result of sin and he does not allow sin into his presence. Therefore, the only way you can get there is if you are sinless. But man is not sinless and God loves man and he wants man to be close. But he can't be close because he's full of sin. So God's got a problem here that he has to fix. He doesn't know how. And the wages of sin is death when we blow it. It means that there's judgment that needs to follow. But he doesn't want us to be judged because he loves us. But he is just and, and, and righteous and his justice must be satisfied. He can't compromise his justice to give us mercy. Lest he compromise his being and then cease to be God. And he cannot do that. And so he's got to figure out a way to make things right with respect to his justice and yet to love us with compassion according to his mercy. How's he going to do it? Because we deserve judgment. We deserve death. I'll send, I, I know, I'll send my son. He won't have Adam on the inside of him. He will be known not as the son of Adam, but the son of God. And so he won't have this problem. He will be straight arrow. He won't be bent. Nothing in him will want to sin. But it's not just what's in him that doesn't want to. He's got to prove it while he's here. In order to be the propitiation, meaning the sacrifice for all of man's sins, he's got to also go through what man did in order to give man victory. He can't just sit from his throne and say, I choose to give you victory. He's got to pur purchase it with his life in every respect. That just as Adam, in fact, Romans chapter 5 talks about the first Adam gave what he could. And that transgression was his portion and he gave us all transgressions. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, calls him the second Adam, lived a, a righteous life and therefore can give us life. And transmits to us righteousness. So, long way around to the front door. We must desire the righteousness that comes from Christ, not the righteousness that comes from observance of the law. Because in observance of the law, the best you can get is this. Trying to do the right thing will not get you right before God because you've already done wrong. And the wrong must be punished. So how do you fix this? Can't be reformed. Can't be taught. The only way you can fix this is to kill it. But God devised a beautiful way whereby you didn't have to stay dead. So this is what happened. He brought his son and he let his son come and live a life that was perfect. Did nothing wrong for 33 years. And people hated him so much that they thought they'd kill him. He was the guy who turned on the lights in the party at 2 a.m. When that light comes on because somebody's over by the wall and flips it with their shoulder by accident, everybody looks at the dude. Turn off the lights! Because nobody wants anybody to see their dirt. Jesus was flicking on the light in everybody's life. And every time they turned it off, he would turn it back on. They hated him. And they killed him. But because he had done nothing wrong, he wasn't deserving of death. 
And if he wasn't deserving of death, when death came to hold him, it couldn't hold on. And so even though it killed him, what he did was in his death, he decided, I'm going to take the penalty for all of mankind in dying because I don't deserve to die. If somebody was altruistic enough in mankind to want to come and say, I'll be the substitutionary death for everybody else and take their penalty, that would be nice. But God would have to say, thank you, but have you done anything worthy of death yourself? Yeah, I'm not perfect. Well, then you have to suffer for your own sin, which disqualifies you from suffering for anybody else's. The only one who could do it is somebody who had never sinned. Are you following me? Thus, Christ was the one who had never sinned. And he was able to take all the death of humanity on himself. In doing so, he conquered death for us. No longer does it have power over the people who have identified with his cross. So when he died, and this is where I said the only way to fix the bend is if God kills it. This is what happens to us. When he dies on the cross, meaning Christ, I choose to die with him. That's why Jesus said, you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. You have to pick up your cross with me, and you got to die with me. I choose to die with him in his death. And in doing so, the old Brett no longer exists. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. Literally, Paul describes it like this. Jesus said, you must be born again. Paul said, we are new creations in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5. New creations, something that has never been before. And all you have to do is talk to my family with whom I grew up to know that this was not the bread with whom they grew up. I'd never been before. My sister comes in here, she sits on the front row and she just goes. That's my brother. It's amazing. And I'm not the same human being. And the beauty is this. Not only have, have I been recreated after his image, I get better and better, which is getting to the righteousness part that we need to perform, not just that which we need to inherit. Segway. But allows us then, when we then die with him, we go down in the grave and no longer, because he has canceled the certificate of death and he's forgiven us of our sin, that at least allows us to be innocent, but he doesn't want us to just remain innocent. He wants us to be righteous. And so now he has not only dealt with our penalty and dealt with our sin and the power of it, he takes us in the grave and with him we come back up. And when we come back up, we live in his power and now inherit his righteousness. Therefore, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Are you listening to me? This is the only way we can be right with him is if we have a righteousness that is based on faith, not on works. Romans 3, 21 through 23. There is a righteousness apart from the law, not according to the law. It's not that the law doesn't apply. We want to do things that are right, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the law cannot help us be right. The only way we can be right is if we die and allow God to recreate us after his image. Be born again. (laughs) You need to hunger for that righteousness. Hunger that he would make you appear right before him, even though your life may not be right. Now, that your, your ticket is, is stamped to go to glory, we're called to hunger for a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that is performed so that you do not, so that nobody out there labels you as a hypocrite. You might be going to heaven, but it sure doesn't look like it. 
I can't tell it all, dude. You chasing skirts just like me. You out there partying as hard as I am. You call yourself a Christian. When did you do that? And how come nobody can tell? There's a righteousness that we need to pursue that evidences the right standing God has given us. So that the world can tell that God is real and that he cares about them. They're looking for somebody who can evidence what Christian right living should look like. And so we need to be people that pursue, are hungry for, go hungry for everything else except the right thing that God wants us to do on a regular basis. If there's anything about which I can be defined in my Christian walk, it's this. Perfection can never be confused with me. I'm not that. Striving for it, but not that. But consistent, trying to figure out how I can do the right thing on a regular basis, am. It's a privilege to be able to go to bed every night knowing that you brought a smile to the face of God with your life. You may not have done it as well as he would have done it, but you gave it your best shot today. You worked as hard as you could to make sure people were bettered as a result of the last 24 you just lived. You made sure that your family was right. You loved your wife the way you should. You brought home the money. You gave to them sacrificially. You served folks by giving the wisdom and the experience of your life for their benefit. You did everything you knew how to do to make sure God was happy today and that your 24 was worth it. Every night I go to bed, I feel that way. You don't know the satisfaction that I have from pursuing and being hungry for right living every day of my life. Do not relegate my comments to those which are incumbent only on the pastorate. This is Christianity 101. Jesus is not giving a leadership lesson here. He's trying to help people learn what it means to live right. Just regular, garden variety humanity. Blessed are you. Happy are you when you hunger to do the right thing and be the right person every day because you will be satisfied. I'm so satisfied. It doesn't mean that I don't pursue trying to be better tomorrow than I was today. But I'm so satisfied. I'm so satisfied that sometimes I wonder, are are you done with me? I do. Are you done? I mean, I've I've done more than I ever thought I could. You've eked out of bread as, as much as I possibly can eek. You squoze as much juice, and yes, I said squoze. As much juice, I didn't know there was this much juice on the inside of me. You see, y'all don't know. You weren't here 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there were 50 people here, and they were all mad. You have no idea the history through which I've gone to help pastor this church. And I'm not complaining. I'm happy for every step of the journey. It was painful, a lot of it, but I'm not complaining at all. I'm grateful to God for every step. But I am amazed that anybody wants to hear anything i got to say. Because everybody stayed away in crowds. And now they're coming around, and I'm the same bread, except I 
I didn't know what I didn't know. I was working with as much as I had back then. And I was pursuing God as hard then as I am now. But I didn't know how messed up I was until I came to an intersection that revealed it. And see, my style of ministry is not conducive for fast growth. I'm an acquired taste. My style of ministry is conversational. It's, it's transparent. I share my weaknesses. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to perform. I'm just trying to be bred. That's all. So in order for me to be competent, I've got to grow up, not just be a better preacher. In order for me to convey truth as best I know how, I've got to first live it. I can't just perform. That goes cross-grained to everything I know to be true about Christianity. And so it takes a long time for us to grow. But when you grow like that, you don't know what you don't know because you're immature. And people can even tell you, you're immature. And you say, I know. But I don't know how to get mature except to wake up tomorrow. So I can't hurry up the process. I'm doing as best I can. But when you get to the place where you grow up more, you become better on Sunday morning. And then more people want to come and hear what you got to say. Which ought to give you hope. That I'm going to preach a better sermon next week. (laughs) If you like this one, it's going to be better. Why? Because it doesn't depend on performance. It depends on how much I pursue. And I am so grateful to God for his mercy to be patient with me. Because you can only run so fast. But the encouraging thing is he is he will extend your days if he feels like it's going to take you some time to get where you need to be. He'll do that for you. So don't think you don't have time to do as well. You got as much time as you have passion. He will make you like a Caleb. Anybody know who Caleb was? Caleb was that guy who went into the promised land and said, hey, we can take these, we can take these dudes. If God is with us, we can, we can do this. Say. Everybody else except Joshua said, no, 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 they're too big. God has brought us, here, brought us in here to kill us. After the Israelites dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years, Caleb came to Joshua, who was the inheritor of Moses' position, and he was in charge of taking the people to the promised land. Caleb came to Joshua and said, listen to me. You remember when we came back from the promised land and we said we could take this thing? God was with us. He said, yep. He said, the Lord told me at that time that he was going to give me a piece of property. I didn't die with the rest of those jokers. I stand before you today at 80 years old, strong as I was at 40. Give me my property. Joshua said, go get it, boy, it's yours. God's patient. He'll make you as strong at 80 as you were at 20 if you hunger for the right thing. Let's pray. 
God, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. I'm really grateful.